How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina, and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music, and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie, and Wrightsville, and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. In two days, only on Disney Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming March 14th only on Disney Plus. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, America's number one motorcycle insurer. Everything is more exhilarating when you're on your motorcycle. Just like your bike is more protected when you choose Progressive Motorcycle Insurance. They offer coverage for your bike starting as low as $75 per year. And they keep things affordable with discounts like paid in full, multi-policy, and responsible driver. So raise your kickstands and get to quoting at Progressive.com to see if you can save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. $75 premium is for state minimum coverage. Not available in D.C. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. Westworld Season 4, Episode 5. Zhuangzi is over, but we are just getting started here on the Westworld Podcast on Osho Recaps. Welcome back to Welcome to Westworld as we are talking about the fifth episode of Season 4. I am Josh Wiggler. I am joined here by Mike Bloom. Mike, chair. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, snap, snap. Get to it. Hop, hop. I mean, people don't realize that this is truly the dynamic off mic that Josh, as sort of the lord of post-show recaps, all of us podcasters must serve as like your veritable human-host hybrids, right? Mm -hmm. We dance to the music, sometimes catastrophically so, falling all over the place. Excited to be here. Excited to talk about, in my opinion, this is going to sound like a very odd descriptor, but the most Westworldy episode of Westworld season four, IMO. Oh, interesting. Can you elaborate on what you what you mean by that? I feel like what Westworld has been known for up to this point uh, was seen in full force in this episode, be it like the opening and closing thematic monologues, you know, the long speeches, the mysterious names for events that we sort of know about, but don't really the, uh, you know, big set piece moments, some action thrown on top of there and then revelations upon revelations. We wondered at the end of episode four what exactly this new world would look like. And 
if we can be whoever the F we want to be, what is that going to entail exactly? Yeah. And we saw a lot more this episode as to what that was. Well, of course, asking questions. But I feel like the tone that they settled into, specifically in this episode, really bringing us into this quote-unquote new world properly, I think for me just really harkened back to some of those tone setters that we have really enjoyed about the series since 2016. I gotta tell you, Mike, we're gonna have a lot to talk about with this episode of the show. It's just us again this week. Joe Garfine gonna be coming back to the podcast as soon as humanly possible. We're also not gonna get to a feedback show this week, unfortunately, so this will be the one shot at season four, episode five of Westworld for post-show recaps. We'll have a lot more to say, I'm sure, and if you've got feedback you wanna get in, and if it's relevant to episode six, we'll talk about it on our episode six podcast. But the thing I want to tell you, Mike, is I loved this episode. I'm loving this season of Westworld. You and I were talking offline before we started up. It's like the Stranger Things deal. We're season yep. four, huge bounce back season for Stranger Things. I think the same thing is going on here with Westworld. A big difference between the two is that like no one really gave up on Stranger Things. Lots of people seemingly have given up on Westworld. I think those of us who have stuck around are being rewarded. Uh, I, I thought this episode was really great. I thought that this episode contained a couple of scenes that I would place as high as just about anything across the franchise. I think that that wow. scene in the city streets with Charlotte the goddess is one of the most chilling scenes I've seen in all of Westworld. Um, just like absolutely mm -hmm, exceptionally mm -hmm. done. Um, and some of the work that Ed Harris is putting into the show this yeah, year. Yeah, we, we get some dual Ed Harris of the men in black work here. Yeah, it's the men in black, baby. Uh, it's great. I love peanut butter and Oreos, do you? It's really, really good. Sugar water. Yeah, it's just fantastic <laughs> We suddenly turned to visit D'Onofrio. Yeah, that's right. I want to see D'Onofrio on this show. I think it would be fun. Um, it also is an episode that I think deepens questions, but to your point, answers others. Um, it's situating us a bit in this new reality. It is a really horrifying look at a possible future world where we have lost and we are under the thumb of our creations. Our creations are now the creators is sort of the idea. Mm -hmm. uh, and there is just a lot underneath that metaphorically, which is, you know, Westworld's bread and butter. So I don't know, Mike, I loved this one. I thought that this was really, really great. I hope other people were enjoying it as well. Well, listen, regardless, we're going to be here to answer your questions. I, I really liked how much this was. I wouldn't call it a rebound, but like a continuance of that big bombastic ending to episode four should be interesting to note though, that like Caleb was a major part of episode four was not seen at all yep. in episode five. Right. Uh, I know it was largely centered of course on New York, which we find out is essentially correct me if I'm wrong here, Josh, like a host park uh, where now like the human host hybrids or the, the, the fly infested humans are now sort of the exhibits in this proverbial zoo. And so we take place largely within said zoo and not yeah. in the desert where uh, where Bernard and C are. I don't know. You think on paper, okay, this outright confirms that Christina is not only Dolores or at least possesses her power, but like is in the same city in the same timeline. But I'm also like, how has she not run into like literally any other character this, besides yes. Charlotte Hale? It's, yes. it's still is a little murky to me. I'm still kind of holding out, not hope, but like, 
still a little bit of like a spec like on skepticism, my brain right? Yeah, yeah, a, of a little bit of like a simulation going on here, especially when it comes to this idea of like checking in on her. No, uh, I totally agree. This is like sort of the you know the moment in the end of season two of Westworld where the man in black plops down and he's like digging into his forearm looking for wires and stuff. Am I me? Am I made up of code? Am I like one of them? I feel like there is a degree to which in watching this episode, I I felt that vibe that I think you're describing of watching the Christina scenes and seeing that so much, the entirety of this episode is set in the New York setting. And I think a very straight viewing of this episode is that all of this is happening in the exact same space at the exact same time, but I can't help but needle into the forearm a little bit and look at these Christina scenes. Notice that she has nothing to do with the man in black. She has nothing to do with Stubbs. Sure, she has scenes with Charlotte Hale or a scene with Charlotte Hale, but that could be any Charlotte Hale. That could be any version of that character. I also tried to look at this episode from the lens of maybe this is all happening at the same time and in the same place, but is there also a reading where Christina's story is happening completely separately or in a different capacity than the rest of this? And I definitely think the answer to that could well be yes. It could go either way right now. I'm not dead set in either direction, but I feel like we should talk through the Christina stuff with the open possibility that something deeper is happening there. Yeah, I will say to the point you made earlier, this is a really great Charlotte Hale episode. Uh, Tessa Thompson has been like really having a moment the past couple weeks. And I feel like though she had a bit of a coming out party in episode two when it came to season four, like, she really gets to revel in being the villainess, which is very fun. Now that she has like gotten what she wanted, right? Now that she has succeeded, though I think if you ask for her rubric, she still feels like she has failed, uh, which is what the man in black points out. We really get to see her like be a leader, in my opinion, for the first time, rather than somebody who is upstarting some sort of insurgency, which is great. We talked in the feedback show uh, that we did with the lovely Latanya Starks about how I was happy we kind of fast-forwarded through the inevitable conflict that led to the, the robot uprising and just sort of, like, plopped us down in the middle of it now because then it allows us to kind of get tossed into the proverbial pool and just start doggy paddling. And yes, while we may flail around for a few minutes, eventually we'll get our pace, we'll get our motions before the next big wave comes along. And so I really like the setting that was invoked here in particular. I know that the world that we have now been left in is frightening as was really invoked in like the first couple of scenes in this episode as we're about to get into but i'm living for the horror elements right now like it is simultaneously terrifying yet captivating yeah i completely agree with all of that i think the components are so compelling uh and i think the themes are being drawn really clearly and cleanly as well and the right stuff right now is appropriately mysterious uh and so i think it's a really fun thing to chew on at the moment i'm loving the season we're going to talk about the episode why don't before we even get into any of the specific story points mike let's talk about the title of this episode episode and what we think it means um apologies for any mispronunciation of this we believe it is pronounced uh Zhuangza. is that right Zhuangza, yeah yes. which refers to both a philosopher as well as 
probably this is more so referring to a text of Taoism yep. that the man himself penned back in like the fourth century BC or something like that. Right. And there's a lot, uh, there's a lot, <laughs> we could just start yeah. there. there's, there's a lot involved in it, uh, from Wikipedia for those who don't want to do that themselves. Uh, it's a book, uh, it's a collection of anecdotes, allegories, parables, and fables, often humorous or irreverent. Uh, its main themes are of spontaneity in action and of freedom from the human world and its conventions the fables and anecdotes in the text attempt to illustrate the falseness of human distinctions between good and bad large and small life and death and human and nature while other chinese while other ancient chinese philosophers focused on moral and personal duty shuangzi promoted carefree wandering and becoming one with the way by oh. following nature this is the way yeah, when's Pedro Pascal going to show up and like, oh, wait, this is the wrong HBO show. Let me get into I my want... zombie wasteland. I think that that would be, that would be great. Um, one of the famous stories that comes from this text is the butterfly dream. Uh, Zhuangzi dreamed he was a butterfly, a butterfly flitting and fluttering about, happy with himself and doing as he pleased. He did not know that he was Zhuangzi. Uh, suddenly he woke up and there he was, solid and unmistakably Zhuangzi, but he didn't know if he was Zhuangzi who had dreamt he was a butterfly or a butterfly dreaming that he was Zhuangzi. Between Zhuangzi and the butterfly, there must be some distinction. This is called the transformation of things. Um, we are getting a lot of, I think, parallels between that idea and Westworld in this episode, Mike. Bad. Not to mention that the entire idea of the mariposa, right, or butterfly in Spanish, it's a butterfly. There's also the butterfly effect, which I think Bernard is sort of going on as well, right? Finding the right path or way that invokes a butterfly effect to get onto the right sort of actions to get the good ending. Which also be noted is that Zhuangzi, again, is a, a pivotal figure in what's known as classical philosophical Taoism. And Taoism, I believe, invokes the central idea of a Tao, which is known as a social or a natural path. And I think that we're going to be talking a lot about paths in this episode in particular, Josh. History is doomed to repeat itself. Is that because we think that um, Stubbs and Jay and everybody were walking through the empty husk of what was formerly the path? train <laughs> exactly like my god new jersey sunk into the sea with those damn robots that's uh -huh. what the tower's built on now so there's no path trade anymore yeah exactly <laughs> well at least they would make the trains run on time so yeah yeah so uh if you tuned into the westworld podcast for a couple of east coast jews talking about taoism <laughs> uh your faith has been rewarded listen but wait, think... listen my liberal arts degree finally pays off showing up years later showing up um but i think that obviously a very philosophically rich episode of a very philosophically rich series and i think a lot of this question of like am i the butterfly or am i me who am i you know all of these are or very am i a muppet i think that these are all very front of mind for frankly most of the characters if not all of the characters in this episode specifically christina is on that journey teddy's trying to wake her up to whoever and whatever she really is uh we are getting that from the man in black in a very big way and especially the confrontation between him and william at the end of this episode uh, and I think that even Charlotte Hale uh, the Dolores proper at this moment in time is going through versions of this as well and clearly there is some degree of infection that is happening from human to host whatever that means is that literal infection is it metaphorical infection Mike uh, but I think these questions of identity crises are permeating Westworld season four, uh, a microcosm of a big theme of the show by and large. All right. Well, let's start off here with 
A Man in Blackalog, uh, which is very fun. This is going to be one of the big bookends of the episode, right? As William is going to opine that there's a beauty to this world, an order. That's what we'd like to believe. We're not raw. There is an order, a grand design. We made sure of that. Uh, I don't know why he turned Southern. It was a I dream know. for so long, and we finally made it real. <laughs> not a better world, a perfect one. Yeah, uh, yeah. You went from like uh, Sawyer to Bull Flume to something that I don't quite understand. Uh, by the end of it, <laughs> to uh, be fair, I don't understand all three of those characters. Very thick accents. I think so. Yeah. Uh, but the man in black is yeah. He's he's monologuing about all of that, and he's sort of our entry point into the idea of um, you know continuing what we got at the end of last week episode that the hosts have conquered the world uh, to some degree that I think still the full scope of which is not completely clear to me. There's a reading of this, Mike, where is New York like the last physical place? Is it, uh, is it like this everywhere or is this everywhere? Is New York the world for humans now? My assumption is that, again, I think this is, I think Dolores is going to, or Christina, sorry, I can't call her Dolores yet, is yeah. says, right, that it's sort of like a walled garden, I believe is how they put it, right? So I really do believe that this is its own separate location. I think what Bernard and Stubbs encounter, the sort of like dusty, dilapidated, host-filled world, is the world as we know it, with all the hosts running around. The last vestiges of humanity exist in the form of these infected humans who are majorly residing in these attractions within these parks. And who's to say, like, maybe New York is this is the the solitary park. Maybe there are ones in, in many major, major central hubs. But otherwise, or stubs, otherwise, like, yeah, I, I think it's pretty much just like hosts all the way down that yeah. humans have either been killed off or culled like outliers. And that's why they're sort of like found in the remote reaches of the desert is because they've kind of been pushed to the fringes of the world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or I don't know. I have a lot of questions about all of this, but the fact that Christina seems to be writing this story of everything and everyone, but it all, all seems to, it all seems to be stemming from what's happening here in Manhattan, um, you know, does make it. And I mean, I guess we're assuming also that it's uh, Manhattan, you know, who knows where we are. It certainly looks like New York, but could this be like simulated rebuilt? I don't know. The whole thing is, uh, is a, is a whole heap and lot, Mike. Um, but we're going to get this scene at the start of the episode where the man in black has uh, apparently five minutes previous to the start of the scene has rolled up to this table, sat across two human beings who are treating the man in black as if they have known him their entire life, that they are very, very good friends. Uh, and the man in black says, no, uh, that's not true. I just met you five minutes ago. Uh, you're right about one thing about the world. Uh, there are two types of people, and you are not in the group that you think you are. Uh, and I loved this scene. I thought that this was really, really good. Uh, the way that he's just like sort of pulling the wings off of the flies here. Oh. Very, very disturbing, Mike. Yeah, well, it's interesting, though, because to a certain respect, uh, LaTanya talked about this on the feedback show, season one of Westworld in particular really made us sympathize with the hosts over the humans, which is the exact opposite of the way the original film made us feel. And to a certain respect, the, be the first half of season four made us sympathize with the humans, I guess, more so Caleb, because he was kind of representing that, than the hosts and what they were attempting to do. But like, 
the, the way this this douche and his wife were presenting themselves, you know, they were kind of making the argument against humanity once more, right? This guy's right. like, yeah, I work with the mayor. There are leaders and there are followers. And you, sir, do not think you're in the right room with them. Right. Uh, and so I do like kind of the shot in Freud of the man in black handing it to him by being like, oh, well, you do not think you're as powerful as you are. You think you're a leader, but you're actually a follower. This is a really weird dynamic, though. It was like the exact opposite power of, hey, my wife and I spied you across the bar. We were really interested in you. This time it's the man in black being like, huh, thought you two could use a third wheel at this moment. Right. Uh, and so to your point, between this and what he's going to go do to like step away for a hot second to t take care of a, a you know very pressing issue just showcases the amount of power that he's going to have. And we'll see that Charlotte's able to have this later on where, Again, your mileage may vary as to whether or not Christina is in New York City or not, but it's clear one of the many things they can do with these infected humans is like they can essentially command, they can give them like a backstory or they can mentally manipulate them to believe something like, oh, this is my old college roommate. Oh, this is the man I've known many, 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 many years. Remind me where I met. You are quite older than me, sir. And they're able to just play with them. I think that's yeah. what they essentially New York City seems like. It just seems like they're their toys that they're able to play with whenever they want to. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's very much what Charlotte's going to talk about in a little while here about the goddesses coming down from the mountain and playing, like posing as swans to play with their playthings. Stop looking at me, swan. <laughs> Shampoo is better. Uh... <laughs> no, toast. Is... There are two worlds, shampoo and conditioner. Yeah, and you are not in the bottle that you think you are. <laughs> what uh... if that's the big twist at the end? It just pans out to add Adam Sandler sitting in the bath being like, and then Charlotte said, oh, no, Dolores, you don't want to do that. And it turns out it was all a Billy Madison production. Happy Madison world is a terrifying prospect for sure. Um, I think that, you know, I ended up feeling uh, some degree of sympathy from these two people that are sitting across from the man in black, because given what we know from the rest of the context of the episode of Charlotte, just like forcing all these people to dance in the street and turning them into human chairs and making the one guy play until his like fingers are stubs, not the robot. Uh, that like, that'd be he, weird. Like this 10 little uh, Luke Hemsworths. Yeah. Tweety F and tweet, uh, you know, that we are, we are in this place where we know uh, we have proof positive that all of these humans are not in complete control of themselves, that they do not have the final word on what it is they get to do and how they behave. Uh, and therefore potentially Mike who they are. So like, should we blame these two people who are across from the man in black for being like, you know, seeming like scum of the earth type of horrible elitist pricks? Or have they been guided that way? Have they been forced in that direction? I think that this is, you know, again, in terms of like philosophical questions that the show is posing, like a, the big idea of free will versus determinism. Are they on the rails? Are they on uh, tracks that they cannot deviate from? Are they on loops that are out of their control? And right. I do well, think that Westworld has always been trying to like ask that question of like, um, you know, how how much of this is under our control versus how much are we, you know, being systemically pushed into these positions? I think it's interesting that they are finding a way to ask those questions through some fairly otherwise seemingly really unsympathetic characters. Well, I think William also expresses that here, right? He says, for years, I used to wonder if I really did play a part in my actions or am I just the sum total of my code? And I keep going back to that season two finale where they are inside the forge and not Logan says, oh yeah, we distilled humanity down to like 
this set lines of code. And you'd imagine that's one of the things that helped Holoris create this entire fly plan is that humans are deceptively simple. Uh, and so I, I think it's it's an interesting thing to bring up. There's also the idea of like leadership and absolute rule uh, for a hot second, right? Where the man and his wife are debating, yeah, have we really progressed from monarchy or like are things, are we better off now than we were before? And the man argues, hey, you know what? At least we're not ruling under this guy that just like, because he was born under the right sun at the right time has, uh, you know, unencumbered rule over us. At least now the people in charge earn their place. When again, I, I think, you know, certainly people nowadays could, could make that argument as well of like, how much further have we truly come from back in those days as well? And also the fact that he doesn't realize it, he has wound up in a monarchy in a manner right. of speaking, actually more of a theocracy, I suppose, in that Charlotte Hale, again, is considered a god and William, one of her devotees. Yes. Uh, but I, I think it's just an incredibly interesting thing that it seems like these people, the more you think about it, I agree. And especially when we cut back and like they're stuck frozen in front of their meals, probably starving for their lives. Uh, that this is a smaller glimpse into what it is like now to be a human, that some people probably were the lucky ones that ended up dying out in this big robot revolution because those that are left are essentially the playthings of all of these hosts that can come here for a weekend and do whatever they want with them. So we go from this dinner conversation to Clementine shows up and we have like man, the man in black and Clementine are like the Benson and Stabler of this iteration of Westworld as they are going to like a crime scene effectively where it, you know, it, it wasn't particularly clear to me on the first watch, but going back and checking it out, uh, it's obviously like a host who has gone off the rails, uh, who has just, you know, is in this apartment, has clearly, you know, killed everybody who is here uh she has another person who it looks like she is about to kill she's talking about how she i found him first i won the game and all i got was more of this she was hunting an outlier is what we hear and the man in black is going to kind of slap her on the wrist and say we don't have rules we don't need them um these people uh care goes into each and every one of them and they can't just be replaced enjoy them but don't break them uh there are no rules here and that's the point which means there are no rules for what i can do to those who don't respect this place how did you read this scene mike is this like one of the higher gods you know slapping one of the lower gods on the wrist yeah so this gets a lot better context once we actually get into the quote-unquote game in a little bit so we're gonna bring i think a little bit of that into this Let's talk about the game, which, by the way, you all lost right yeah. now. Uh, but basically what happens is, okay, they have succeeded in their mission. There are infected hosts who are able to do the bidding, or sorry, humans that are able to do the bidding of the hosts. On occasion, I guess we could call this a bit of like a margin of error, or they use the term outliers, which is in comparison to what Sirach did, right? This idea of no matter what perfect system you try to regulate, there are still people that are naturally going to slip through the cracks. It's just human nature in a manner of speaking. And so there are going to be people that sort of break their conditioning for whatever reason. There still isn't an explanation. I have a feeling there will be one at some point. They're able to see the tower. They see the mirage, right? They see the man behind the curtain. And then when that happens, the idea of the game gets brought up, which is, hey, host, here's a fun thing. This guy has a bounty on him now. This is the way, Zhuangzi. Go get this bounty. Go hunt down this person. 
Now, the issue is, we'll find out later with this particular host named Hope, is that she ended up talking with the outlier, and he ended up kind of planting a bug in her ear a bit. Had her questioning not necessarily the nature of her own reality, but sort of like the purpose of what she's doing more so. I think it might be a bit too broad to be like, oh, she made him, uh, he made her sympathize with him. But it's definitely something to make her sort of like question her own coding and her own purpose to the point where now she just goes AWOL and starts killing them. What I do find interesting is, again, we could talk a lot about the role reversal and about the idea of New York City as a park. Charlotte Hale and William by proxy are very adamant that they are not going to do the exact same thing. And it's very indicative here, where in Westworld, you could kill, F, eat, whoever the hell you want, because they just wheel them on back, and then bippity-boppity-boo, they come back out again the next day, brand spanking new. Here, the man in black is very cautious to warn, as you mentioned, like, these are irreplaceable. We don't get cold storage. These are flesh and blood people. We can't exactly recreate them like they do our own kind. And so I think that's just a little crumb of the fact that Hale is trying to sort of copy what she's learned, except make it in her model a bit. Now, granted, your mileage may vary as to whether or not it's working, but yeah, that's, I was understandably confused the very first time we watched this. Again, dropping us in the middle of the pool uh, and making us swim. But once we get the explanation of the outliers and the game in the next couple of scenes, it really does then backfill essentially where all this is coming from. Yeah. Well, we'll check in on how this host is doing in just a couple of minutes. Uh, She's dead. She's dead. She's not doing great here. She's doing worse a couple of scenes from now. Um, But I think all of the, the questions that are being posed here and just like the vibe of this opening scene is like very unsettling, which is exactly what they're, uh, you know, I think meant to evoke. Uh, we've we've lost. We're trying to put ourselves in the skin of uh, of what this world looks like uh, at this point in time. And I think like seeing even our subjugators are struggling. Uh, you know, the shoe's kind of on the other foot at this point now where uh, we talked about this at the start of this podcast. You know, uh, there was, uh, the show began with a subversion of the Westworld movie, right? Uh, the hosts are the heroes this time. Humanity is bad. And now it is kind of uh, really flipped in a major way. And yet, I think to the point of this episode title, a lot of what uh, is is present in the idea of Shuangza, uh, according to, to the light, light, light research that has been done on the part of the host of this podcast, is that it's about questioning, um, you know, the falseness of human distinctions between good and bad. Uh, and so uh, are all hosts good? Are all hosts bad? Are all people good? Are all people bad? Uh, is a host a person? Is a person a host? All of these questions of what is the butterfly, the butterfly problem in full effect. So I think that this opening sequence of the episode really plays really well with those ideas that Jonah Nolan, Lisa Joy, and the rest of the team are clearly very invested in. I really like the Westworld cold opens, Mike. Not every episode does this, and it wasn't even a thing they started doing until season two, I believe. Um, But I really enjoy it when we get like a little bit of a teaser here, and I thought this was a very good one. Yeah, well, especially because, again, it bookends really nicely to the fact that right now the Man in Black is sort of like, maybe because I've just been reading too much Secret Wars in the Marvel Universe, but like the Sheriff, right, in this God-Doom recalibrated universe. Uh, He's the one that is carrying out sort of Hale's orders here. Hale, as he points out many times, barely comes to the quote-unquote park in New York City. And so he's one that's really enforcing her things. And the fact that despite him 
really cementing this set of rules or lack thereof right now, he is going to become a bit corrupted, a bit questioning things by the end of it. It's a really nice bookend. And so I'm glad that we sort of like were able to separate this out to start. Because I also feel like we haven't really concentrated on him. Again, he opened up the entire season, but like he has been seen as such a lapdog to Charlotte that much like Holoris herself was to Dolores in season three, now it carries forward again and William is in this role in season four. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, America's number one motorcycle insurer. Everything is more exhilarating when you're on your motorcycle. Just like your bike is more protected when you choose Progressive Motorcycle Insurance. They offer coverage for your bike, starting as low as $75 per year. And they keep things affordable with discounts like paid in full, multi-policy, and responsible driver. So raise your kickstands and get to quoting at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. $75 premium is for state minimum coverage. Not available in D.C. Discounts not available in all states or situations. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by PWC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough reinvention. Explore the human-led tech-powered solutions that help you reinvent. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at pwc.com. So let's wake up with Christina, Mike. Uh, she apparently was up all night, and Maya's like, ooh. Chris is not like that. Get your head out of the gutters, trash. We had a really good time, Maya. Uh, stop being so filthy. Maya's like, all right, okay, fine. Uh, so a lot of these, uh, the fly dreams seem to be put aside right now, Mike. Not a lot of movement on the Maya front this time around. Do you have any further thoughts on Maya? I think this is her only scene in the episode. She's in on it. She is 100% in on it. They mm -hmm. ended the scene with, I'm really glad that your date went well. Like, come on. She could not be laying it on thicker if she was organic peanut butter. Mm -hmm. uh, she is very clearly in that on it. That stuff is really she, thick, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, she's really in on it in every way, shape, form. What should be noted here, Josh, I know that we were very cautious to say, okay, we don't know James Marsden's character's name. We're just going to call him James Marsden. Straight up no, Teddy. Yeah, Malcolm's Razor, his name is Teddy. I guess it, considering that we see what his role really is in this episode, which is to like really wake Christina up in who she truly is, I guess it makes sense to say, yeah, I'm just going to call myself Teddy and see if that rings a bell. Yeah, I mean, and also the way that he talks to her and like I used to know someone who was basically like you. I feel like the way he's talking about it, Another card could flip, but I'm taking this. This is this is Teddy Flood has returned from uh, from the Sublime, or we are potentially even in the Sublime. We don't know. We don't know. Um, but I think that that uh, I don't know if you have a different take on it. For me, it feels like this is just Teddy straight up. Yeah. So then that does beg the question, though, right? Of I, I guess this has to be Bernard then, because Teddy was put in the Sublime, and considering that Bernard is the only one who has access to it, if this is indeed a simulation or some sort of program run by somebody to get christina to quote unquote wake up i have to imagine this is bernard's doing then right to like bring out uh you know this is your life dolores abernathy try to wake up to who you were right. cure of that amnesia 
I'd imagine this is his kind of move. I hope so. I think that actually, like, um, a lot of the pieces that are in play, especially because Aaron Paul's character was killed off and rebooted in some sort of mechanical way, that we are basically free of any sort of mortal obligations. Um, that's not necessarily true for William, uh, though he is in, like, some form of cryostasis where if they wake him up, he's still just the guy, uh, right? Like, I mean, this is 23 years later, and he's talking to the man in black as if he hasn't aged a day. Uh, so he could be, we could, what I'm trying to get, uh, drive at is we could do this thing, Mike, in season four, where it's going to be like tired, 23 year time jump in the fourth episode of season four, wired. 2,300 year time jump in the seventh episode of season four. Like the possibilities of spanning a really long stretch of time. That might be pretty extreme, but a, a bunch, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. Like, a, like a big stretch of time. I think it's on the table. And I think for, for me, and I, I wish that I had like the article pulled up in front of me to like quote it directly. But I certainly remember when I was covering the show journalistically and having conversations with Lisa Joy and uh, Jonah Nolan about their plans for the show is that they really were enamored of the idea that because of the nature of the host's realities, they could uh, span generations. They could, you know, take a tour of a long stretch of time at certain points. And right now where we are at four seasons deep into the show is somewhere in the vicinity of, you know, 30 years or so have passed since like the real time, like the present time, quote unquote, of season one. That's not a crazy amount of time considering some of the things that they were sort of looking at and forecasting. I think it's possible that we could go really, really far into the future and still have just about every single character still on board. That's bad news for C and Frankie and Jay. Uh, but I think just about everybody else can come along for the ride. And with that in mind, I think it is possible that what we're looking at with Christina and Teddy is happening further along the timeline than everything we're getting with the man in black and Stubbs and Charlotte in this episode, whether it's, you know, two years, a hundred years in the future. I think we are at a further point down the line is sort of my feeling uh, based on how all of this is playing. If Bernard is involved, then we have, if Bernard is involved in like sending Teddy to Christina, then I do think that we have to be further along in the timeline still. And we're dealing with two timelines right now. Yeah, I'd have to imagine that at some point we're going to get, you know, Bernard going assumingly underground back into the desiccated ruins of the Temperance Park uh, to sort of like maybe get some tech back so that he could revive some of the people. Sort of like what what Maeve was attempting to do, right, in season three before Serac cut her off. So I agree if this Christina stuff is indeed not happening in our world then it has to have happened at least a little bit of time later then the big reveal is oh yeah this is all taking place after bernard is able to you know uh go into create this simulated universe in new york and plant christina in to wake up a version of dolores so obviously josh one of the big twists of this episode is that christina is has been writing like peter's ravings were correct right uh, that she has been essentially writing the narratives for all these people I think where it first started to come together for me is when she goes into work and she asks to access like the character narratives that she's working on. And we see inmate, mechanic, maid, student, gardener, accountant, and wealthy man. 
And then the next scene we're going to get, which we'll get into, or one of the future scenes when they're at the sort of like pseudo Mesa of New York is when Hale says, oh yeah, uh, this guy is a former accountant turned homeless man. That word really pinged on my radar of, okay, maybe this indeed was another one of Christina's characters. So it could be possible that like, maybe it seems like she's creating a lot, a lot of people, maybe not all though. We'll certainly get into that, but seems like she's largely responsible for a lot of the outsiders. Well, yeah. I mean, when we see later on when Christina is going to go into um, the, the, she says like, show me the game. And it just shows her again, the city. And she's like, show me my characters. And it shows her a few, but it seems like the computer's taking a minute to boot up <laughs> yeah. because then it just like shows her every single person in the city that I definitely think that the, uh, the instructions of this episode are pointing us towards, yeah, Christina's writing all of these people. She's writing everybody. Yeah. Which, Again, if this were the real world, makes you once again question Charlotte Hale's motives here yeah. and logic as to why essentially she would be recruiting uh, arguably the biggest thorn in her paw to essentially fill this city. But hey, if you want some free labor, like sure, make her at least size more. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we see the scene. Christina goes to work. She's sorting through the NPCs, as you say. She wants to write a new story, and she starts talking about the rancher's daughter. Uh, this is going to have a very satisfying answer later in the episode. And it's almost happening here. And when it didn't, I was like, oh, man. Uh, so I was so glad that later on in the episode, she says Dolores Abernathy. Yeah. So when Emmett comes in, the stupid boss, right? She ends up pitching him on this narrative and goes into the entire thing that we know about Dolores. She had a nice, simple life with everything she can imagine. She's full of expectations, but one day she gets a feeling that she can't shake, that there's something wrong with the world. And like you said, she's nearly there, which we see a little bit in the final sequence of season one, right? The revelation about the, the bicameral mind, about right. uh, you know reaching the center of the maze. So the question about Emmett is like Teddy... Is he a plant? Right. You know, was he spurring on to be like, keep going, tell us more? Or was he just like on his jerk path that day? And it just happened coincidentally that he said, sure, pitch what you want to do. And then she just completely spiraled off for this hot second. Hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely. Well, this is an interesting question, Mike, because I think that there's a world where, yeah, he's a plant uh, and he is, you know, being tapped with uh, he's being tasked with like keeping tabs on Christina. Maybe he's employed there by Charlotte directly. Or there's the other possibility, one of the other possibilities at the very least, but a big one to consider is if we know that um, Christina can control people, if we know that Charlotte certainly can control people, could it be sort of like that old Robert Ford thing of talking through other hosts, of like talking through other people? Like, is that scene towards the end of this episode when Emmett is going to start like speaking a bit more openly and honestly with uh, Christina is she talking to Emmett or is she talking to somebody who is talking through Emmett? Yeah, it's a very good question, right? Could this be Bernard? Is Bernard the Ford in this case, having truly replaced him after once occupying the same mental space as him of talking through all these characters? Because if that's the case, then like it makes sense that Bernard would be Maya, that Bernard would be Peter in a manner of speaking, that like he's essentially hopping into these roles. Because otherwise, like Emmett has just been this jerkish boss that's more so served as an obstacle. And he still kind of will in the next scene when she comes back to work. But I just find it interesting that, again, if the entire goal is for her to not catch on as to what her true purpose is, to have him be like, 
oh no, please tell us your story. You're nearly at the best part. Uh, right. It's a little bit of a, a tough thing to do if that's the goal. But it might be investigative because if Christina is under the microscope that I think um, Teddy certainly fears that she might be, and I think that we should fear that she might be considering her uh, weekly lunches with Charlotte Hale, which is a lot to unpack and we'll do that very soon, um, then I think that it could be that she's acting in ways that are breaking the loops. And so sort of like the security team, as it were, is checking in uh, to see, are we going to need to do some sort of system wipe? Are we going to need to do some sort of system reboot? But why go through the trouble? Why have her in this position at all, to your point uh, of being somebody who could be a real disruptor to Charlotte's plans? It's a very important question that I think likely has a very human answer. Uh, so uh, let's talk about that when we get to that uh, restaurant scene, I think, is, uh, is probably the place to do it. Um, for now, she's going to get a call from Teddy. She's going to go off and talk to Teddy, and we're going to get into all of that in a little bit. First, we get Charlotte in the streets. Uh, mm. I loved this scene. This was like... Um, this was Tessa Thompson as Charlotte Hale. This is like her Joker moment. I felt like you know there's yeah, like, and Dan, uh, there's and she's dancing on the stairs. She's like uh, like uh, the the people of Gotham have been Joker gassed, and she's in control. Like it sort of has that vibe to it of uh, you know the the piano version of such a perfect day. Uh, people being turned into chairs, people being forced to dance, people being forced to do things with their bodies that are just exhausting. Ice all for her amusement. being thrown onto the floor. Mm -hmm. defiance that uh, was brutal yeah that poor guy uh i've yeah, seen no, better well, do it again well here's the thing here's a, a hot take for everybody out there or maybe a cold take nobody looks good in ice sculpture form none maybe of you us just were haven't meant met to... a great ice sculptor mike i don't know none of us were meant to be bobby drake you know none of us were meant to take on the form of ice and uh -huh. so i i think that any version uh like i if you told me would you rather I don't know, uh, get a nice pair of shoes or have an ice sculpture made of you. Shoes every day. Yeah, of course. This is... <laughs> I mean, that's not much of a choice. It's like, oh, I don't know. Some people might can, say that whether the ice sculpture really the shoes. Something I could use or something that's going to melt in a day. Yeah, I think I also would take the shoes. <laughs> I'd be intrigued to see if anyone would take the ice sculpture over the shoes. Yeah, please let us know at Round Howard, at a Mike Bloom type, or if you want to join the Poster Recaps Patreon Discord and let us know if you would take ice sculpture over shoes. That's <laughs> patreon.com slash you know, the more you say it, The more I realize that this truly is not a choice. The free will is uh, an illusion, but yeah. Like over the course of the Mike, show, should we put ice sculptures up in the post show recaps merch store at postshowrecaps.com slash store? Uh, should we be working on getting ice sculptures, uh, custom ice sculptures in the post show recap store of us or of the person ordering them? I guess you, I mean, the person ordering them could ask them to make them of us if that's what they want. Uh, I, I suppose so, but I fear the hails out there that are just like smash. This isn't what I wanted. Also, uh, transport is going to be quite difficult for that. All right. Well, uh, keep looking, posterrecaps.com slash store to see if ice sculptures of myself and Mike Bloom show up at any point in time. Uh, you just never know. The man in black is going to show up finally. And basically, like, the whole vibe from the man in black to Charlotte in this scene to me is like, lady, what are you doing? <laughs> this is nuts. All of this is crazy. And, but she's just like, I'm bored. I'm bored. But I, I do like the fact that we sort of get a bit of, like, the science of the sounds, right? Which is essentially the brown note. Uh, this idea that there is a frequency at which the world vibrates and that she has sort of found, like, the chaos-causing presence. So in this case, it more so causes order, very strict order, that it's something that only humans can really perceive. 
Uh, but it's she mentions what you mentioned before, right? She compares the story of the Greek gods about how people thought that they came down out off of Mount Olympus to like interact with their people in a manner of speaking. But no, it was more so to F with them. Maybe it's just there was nothing better to do. Yeah. Uh, and in a manner of speaking, like she is both their God, but I would also call her from a biblical sense, like she is kind of the Adam here as well, right? There's a moment where Hale uh, talks about, you know, uh, oh, you think what I want you to think. Uh, and they say that, oh, they're all made off of her code, right? which I guess makes sense. Then yeah, she is sort of, there's all, we're all sort of derived from her and so she is sort of a combination of a deity but also like the first man in a matter of speaking yeah i mean she's sort of like the the godhead from which all of this is springing and she herself was sprung forth from a similar deal and we heard in season three uh obviously we know from season three that dolores cloned herself multiple times over and that charlotte is an offshoot of that process but in the fight between dolores and mave towards the end of season three dolores is talking about how you are all made from me i'm the first one that they got right and the rest of you you're based on my code so i am the one in charge i am patient zero uh so it's just sort of continuing that trend and especially if the dolores that exists now in the form of charlotte hale the one who has won the one who has conquered the human species i think that this person would be inclined to continue this process to continue this process of like creating people that are are shaped in her image and there is a very biblical um you know resonance with that idea a very mythological resonance within all of that um and i think that there's probably also like a very frustrated um human thing to to hone in on with all of that is sort of like the idea of parenthood and like your kids disappointing you because you had all of these thoughts of what they should be and they are not turning out the way that you wanted them to. She's going to talk to the man in black about this when they go back to headquarters when she show when she's going to show him about the outlier problem. And we are seeing that a bunch of the hosts, uh, they've been sort of like uh, positioned in the direction of let's transcend, let's upload our brain balls into some sort of situation that we still don't fully know the scope of, Mike. Mm -hmm. Maybe some sort of uh, sublime to their own, right? Let's just repeat that process and create our own world. And people aren't really doing it. The hosts have decided they like it here in City Park. They like being here, uh, messing around with the humans, being the gods coming down from Olympus and playing around. Uh, they do not want to go. And so the man in black's like, well, why don't you just force us to join you? Uh, and she says, well, that's what they would do. So there is this, like, not just boredom to Charlotte Hale that's going on, Mike, but also, like, I'm so disappointed in you from, like, sort of, like, the condescending parent to their kid who just got in trouble. Like, that dy dynamic is very, very much in place. Oh, absolutely. I mean, she is very much talking down to the man in black in this moment because, again, I think she feels like she's had this conversation multiple times with multiple hosts and that there's nobody who is necessarily her equal right now. It's a little bit of like a different level but it's very homelander to me in right. the boys uh which kevin mahadeo and i have talked a lot about about if you consider yourself a god uh you pretty much have nowhere to look but down right she's the only man in the sky in a matter of speaking but it's such an interesting line that she draws to your point of okay well she could conscript people into transcending if she thinks that's what's good for them but she is very adamant at least in maybe some of these other questionable decisions to at least say no, I'm not going to be just like them. I think to your point, she's very disappointed in the fact that despite the fact that these hosts have been made with code, 
and should be better essentially than the humans, they are basically doing the same thing the humans have done, which is falling into these vices, you know, getting trapped in this sense of latency and freedom, but they're really making sure, at least when it came to Delos, who was then sort of nefariously saying, oh yeah, but you're not actually free because we're going to be using your data for this purpose later on. Right. She really is just sort of like letting go of the leash in this moment. And as a result, not that many dogs are coming back. And yeah, to the whole transcending thing. What do we think? I have to imagine it's going to be some sort of like cloud hive mind thing. Yeah. Right? Because the entire- Like cloud from like Final Fantasy Seven or- yeah, because there's going to be actually a flashback. There's like, wait a minute, I'm not Charlotte. I'm this other person uh -huh. the entire time. This is <laughs> yeah. not my story. Yeah, uh, that was right. the sort of the Dolores Christina thing, actually, is Cloud yeah. and what was his name? Zach? Yeah. Uh, not to get into too many Final Fantasy. Zed, episodes. if you're listening, make sure Adam doesn't listen to this podcast. Continue. Yeah, exactly. But I think that it seems like if the issue is a numbers thing, that this is clearly the next big project that Holoris wants to do. And she's not getting a lot of buy-in. And transcending to me really implies an idea of afterlife, right? That's the spiritual aspect. That's what happened with the sublime. Like the spirit left the host bodies yeah. to go into the sublime. Why, and their isn't, bodies... why isn't anyone pulling a cheaty and just walking through the door, right? You know? Yeah. <laughs> just exactly. go through. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, this is the bad place for yeah. many uh, humans out there. So yeah, it's it's just a really interesting idea that, again, I think she shows a lot of disappointment towards that she has her own vision of the future, but it turns out that much like actually Caleb's uh, co-worker opined to him in the very first episode of the season, like the more things change, the more they stay the same. She thought she was going to make a new world order by having these hosts take over, but it turns out that the only thing has changed is really like the composition of bodies, that the hosts are sometimes acting just like the humans. Right, right. Uh, and that they're enjoying their time here and enjoying sort of, the cruelty of this place, or at least like the hedonism of this place, much in the way that the humans enjoyed going to Westworld and going to the park and doing all of the terrible things that they did there. I think it is a strong argument from Joy and Nolan uh, that uh, robots, they're just like us. Uh, you know, you give something sentience and inevitably some destructive qualities are going to come out as well. Um, so that's pretty pessimistic and disappointing, but what are you going to do? There is no higher species, Mike. We're all just out to get each other. Well, that's the thing though. At least now I can look at my toaster and be like, you're not better than me. Yeah. I'm better than you. In fact. And then you just like unplug the toaster and you're like, now try and toast my bread. Exactly. That's the thing is that, uh, listen, there's a good chance that my toaster would also engage in like highly immoral sexual activities. You don't just know. Hasn't given the opportunity yet. Yeah. Uh, you have to leave the house and then the toaster gets to talk to the other appliances. Uh, oh, the blanket and the air conditioner. Yeah, I was going to say that. Real didn't watch, I didn't watch that version of the Brave Little Toaster with <laughs> immoral sexual activities. Yeah. To the fruity. All right. So um, the Man in Black and Charlotte are going to be talking about how uh, these outliers are out of control, Mike, and they are infecting the hosts. And we see this replay of this host who we'd seen in the teaser, who we see when they go to headquarters is dead. She had killed herself. Uh, and it is as a result of some form of infection from the humans, that there are interactions, and this is not supposed to happen. The hosts find the outliers. The outliers are people who can see the tower, who all of uh, Charlotte's careful planning 
could not um, take into account uh, that uh, she said she said there was always going to be a certain amount of spoilage and that was always fine that there was always going to be outliers who could see the tower and everything like that and that was uh, inevitable as part of this process but we've got a system for dealing with them and part of that system is hosts go take them out effectively drone strikes I would say uh, and uh, but not with the drone hosts they're just still situated in the tower they should be like you know totally impersonal uh, executions is basically Basically what she's advocating for there should be no real contact and yet we are seeing that some of these hosts are making contact with people uh and it's uh it reminded me very much of lost my yeah don't, don't, don't let, let them the talk to man, you yeah don't talk yeah. to the man in black or he'll infect you yeah uh and so we see this scene of her uh going to this guy who who's like almost relieved he says i'm almost relieved that you're here to know that this wasn't in my head so tell me at least is this one thing real and he holds up the flower he just wants at least one real thing. And she does say it is real. And then she kills him. Uh, and that seems to live rent free in her brain ball all the way up until the very end when her body is seen with a flower uh, with it. Um, so according to Charlotte, there are 38 dead hosts that have been triggered by these outlier events. And she's got no idea why this is happening. And she's also very mad that the man in black has no idea why this is happening because he's supposed to be like his predecessor. He's supposed to be bigger, better, faster, stronger version of William. And instead, he's this schmohawk. Yeah, he's calling them a daft punk, all these yes. kids that are running around. But let's talk about this thing that happened to Hope because so we saw at the end of the cold open that like, William left the room and like Clementine took Hope's face in her hands and that was it. And the next time we saw her, she was dead by the side of the pool. So is it assumed to mean that like, what did Clementine have a talk with her? Did she kill her and then framed it as a suicide? Like how did that exactly lead to where we end up seeing her? Um, I think that the, the, the suggestion is that something is taking root in these interactions between people and, and hosts and uh, the man in black, uh, the robot in black, when he's talking to William, I think just for the sake of distinction, yeah. man in black is the host. William is the human uh, that the man okay. in black, when he's talking to, to William uh, is saying like, you infected us. There's something going on. Like that. What, what is it that they're giving? And I think, we, we can spend a lot of time asking questions of like, what is that infection? To some degree, I feel like, Mike, maybe that infection is shame and guilt. Uh, you know, like human characteristics, uh, like introspection. What I am doing is wrong and what I am doing is bad. And I can't escape the guilt and the shame and the horrible feelings of like subjugating these people. I think maybe some of that is is taking root. Um, so I wonder if those are like the things that have like sort of like short circuited folks like the host who we see has uh, taken her own life in this episode. Do you think they missed an opportunity, speaking of loss, to have Daniel Day Kim in the role of the man with the white flower? Always. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that if, you got a, if you got a chance of bringing DDK and you don't take it, then yeah, you've screwed up pretty badly. Yeah, because then you know when he has a white flower, like, oh, nope, he bought it, hook, like, and sinker. She's she's getting on that plane. She's not going to go leave to run away at this point. She's in no. for good. Yes, absolutely. There's uh, no so, hope. Quite literally, hope is dead. So the man in black is going to be assigned with going out there and uh, snatching up another one of these outliers. And his orders are, don't let them chat you up. Shoot them on sight. He's like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to shoot on it, sight. It should be noted as well that as Hale is digging into William... She's also digging into her own skin, yes. uh, which is interesting. I think that- Something she was doing a bunch in season three. 
especially in the beginning where she quite literally did not feel comfortable in her own skin. And so I think that shows that that facet has not necessarily gone away. Right. And I think it is a little bit out of anxiety. We're starting to see her unravel a little bit and it shows her back to being that sort of insecure person in this brand new world. Now it's a new new world and she might be feeling even more insecure now that she's at the top even if she does feel like she doesn't necessarily care but yeah it should be noted i also like when they acknowledge the fact that like she does have one scarred side of her body she wears it a lot to cover it up especially when she's talking with christina but we always get like hints of it uh this idea of her almost using it as a memorial of what she's fighting for Right. Uh, yeah, she said that at the end of season three that she wasn't going to get rid of it. Uh, and seems like she has not yet gotten rid of it all these years later. Um, Man in Black has orders. He's got to go and find this outlier. Turns out we've got an arms race here, Mike. As this Stubbs, ain't a scene. Stubbs and the Stubbs and the and the and the crew are going to roll up to New York in a boat. How did they get here from the West Coast so quickly? I'm assuming the boat had legs. Uh huh. It just yeah. had big like. Bzz, bzz, metallic legs that stomped over the highways and then finally settled into the water so they could go all the way around. Literally any amount of time could have passed. Who knows? You know, it's totally fine. Uh, but they're they're going to show up in New York, uh, infiltrate Manhattan by way of Brooklyn. Uh, it seems like they're in Red Hook is what that looked like to me or maybe Williamsburg. Uh, and uh, Stubbs is going to be tasked with going in as the canary in the coal mine. Uh, tweety effing tweet. Uh, my favorite luke hemsworth line delivery uh of all of westworld and it's not close yeah now i'm debating if i want to make that my my twitter headline tweet yeah. effing tweet yeah i think that's pretty good um but we have this like collision course going on between Stubbs's crew and the man in black all going after the same person i guess i wish that this ended up being more Stubbs centric than it ends up being like um i'm I'm cool with Jay as a character. I think Jay is pretty rad and definitely gets to to have a great heroic moment here uh, in rescuing the outlier. But I feel like if you're bringing Stubbs to New York and you're bringing Stubbs uh, into some form of conflict adjacent to the man in black, especially as like kind of a callback of that gentleman gets whatever he wants, I would have liked to have seen a little bit of the two of them going at it. Yeah, I think Daniel Wu is a good actor and like the character is fine. I think one of the larger problems that Westworld has is they like to kind of bring in these militarized mercenary characters every season and we don't really care about them. It's a different face on a different body doing the same thing. But at least Jay is like fairly effective at his job. But yeah, basically what's going to happen is we're, it's, a, it's, it's a race. Uh, it's essentially like a rat race where they're going to be encroaching on the bounty essentially with Jay's group intending to like grab and go and Man in Black's mission to kill it. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So Christina is going to meet Teddy, uh, having uh, received the phone call from him. Uh, and at first it's like, oh, hey, Teddy, I guess we're going to continue that awesome conversation. He's like, yeah, listen, so I think that you should be thinking about the fact that you're a secret robot. And you don't know about that. Yeah, like, he really went what? from like plan plan A to F, right? Yeah. Like, all right, bail, bail. We gotta we gotta pump the the gas quickly. We realize it's episode five out of eight. Oh, yeah. we really slow rolled this thing. We're getting pretty close. Uh, we've got less time than we realized, so we really need to just speed this. Yeah, and then, and then there was that whole episode three where she wasn't in it at all. That really cost us time. Yeah, so we don't have a lot of time. So we're just gonna have to get to the whole like obviously you're not a human being, and we'll just get into that now. Uh, so we are to find out here. Uh, Mike that Christina uh, is uh, she's going to to recognize Teddy now as the person who had defended her uh, you know back in the first episode that he was sort of like the mysterious stranger in the dark um, and he is going to tell her that I'm an old friend of yours and I knew someone like you just like you uh, and he is going to tell her that um, she is very conditioned to this place. Her mind is very conditioned to this place, this place that is a lie. It's a story. It's a well-told one, but it is a lie all the same. Uh, and he is going to demonstrate this to her by taking her to the park where he is going to have her uh, look at a couple of strangers across the way who seem incredibly lonely. Now I want you to envision a world for them where they are not lonely. They start chatting each other up. And then she says, they could just be chatting each other up. He's like, well, then try it again and make them lonely again. And then she does. And they get into a huge fight. And Christine is like, whoa, shit, I guess I am a robot. Mike, would that be enough proof for you that you were a robot? No, because listen, candid camera and impractical jokers exist in our world, right? Like, who's to say that those three jamokes are not in a room being like, all right, you two now pretend to break up, and that Teddy was the guy that was on it the entire time? Yeah, I don't think that I would then make immediately the leap that I'm some sort of, uh, you know, god of this place. Uh, right, because then that, then you find yourself, like, leaping off a building to see, if, which she might actually end up doing. She's like, hey, if it's such a simulation, then if I leap off, then, then we'll see what exactly happens. What I do find interesting, and we'll get into this a bit more in the scene with Emmett, is that this was not Dolores's power set uh, back in the first three seasons. I mean, I guess it was more so in season three when she was able to command technology, but this was more of a Maeve thing, yeah. IMO, complete with the narrative thing, right? Where Maeve would oftentimes be like, and then this person did this. Maybe it ties more into the fact that Christina is a writer, and so she would speak in that fashion. But I do find that really intriguing, that though it's implied that she is sort of the second coming of Dolores, the way she is actually exercising things seems like something more out of Maeve's playbook. Well, does that say anything to you about who Christina might actually be? It does indeed. That might actually be the case. Maybe the reason why she looks up Dolores Abernathy and she's not in there is because she should have been looking up Mae Malloy. Yeah, yeah. Could be a misdirect here uh, that there could be some Maeve in Christina as a possibility. Uh, that's something that I think uh, could be really fun to chew on in a moment here. Uh, but she is she is not, uh, he says, uh, I knew someone like you, just like you. So even by this guy's estimation, if we're taking this as Teddy proper, Mike, he is uh, not saying that she is outright Dolores. No, I think it, it just is an idea of you remind me of somebody, but 
Yeah, uh, Teddy is outright, like, again, basically getting her across the finish line. She'll be able to finally, like, unlock her power set once she talks with Emmett, but he really opened hers and, by proxy, our eyes. It should also know, so we mentioned this in the previous episode, right, that she did not, nor Maya knew what the tower was, and this sort of corrects the assumption that we made last week of, okay, any quote-unquote humans, or perhaps if you're inside a simulation and you're coded to, do not see the tower. You just go right. about your happy life, not aware of this big thing that overshadows you at every moment. Or if it's, you know, a physical reality and Christina is a host, certainly there's tons of precedent in the show oh, of yeah. Westworld uh, for hosts to, to be coded in a way where they can't see a thing. So uh, it could be that the tower is just visible to people who have been permitted access to see the tower, host or human alike. Yeah, exactly. So let's get to some kicky, punchy but also mostly talky-talky stuff. Yeah, there's some punchy-kicky Stubbs and Jay and everybody. They're going through the streets, and then all the people are sent after them, uh, very, like, 28 Days Later style, like, fast zombie running. Uh, and the man in black is uh, simultaneously searching for the outlier as Jay is going up the stairwell to, to reach the same outlier. And the man in black, who said he was going to shoot on sight, uh, she doesn't even say anything, Mike. He just lays eyes on her and gets to the rooftop. She hasn't said a single freaking word, and he just saddles up next to her. Could it be, and I actually looked this up because I was a little face blind, or at least I didn't remember it. Could it be this is a woman with dark hair? Could this be like a trigger memory for him of an Emily or a Juliet? And yeah. that is why William takes like a bit of pity or a bit of pause to let her in. Yeah. Every single time the man in black has seen a white lady with dark hair, he's just been like, whoa. They're, they're incredibly rare, Josh. Maybe that's why he like, much like uh, Bernard and Dolores, uh, she, you know, Charlotte pulls a forward of like, I never let you be in the same room with a brunette woman because you right. just go gaga. He's like, these brunettes. Uh, maybe. They're I driving that, me crazy. I think that that's interesting, especially because I think the man in black has a lot of, uh, he is like a big uh, daddy complex uh, towards William, right? And so like, this is like some of that maybe generational trauma leaking down of, mm. you know, what, and what not, you, you know, if he's, not, if he's based on William and he does not have William's actual exact experiences, but the things that made William, William are circulating through the man in black's code. These could be things that are like, why is this so upsetting to me? I can't put a finger on it, but I know that it sucks. Yeah, I think what also maybe triggered it for me and possibly him as well is when this woman mentions her ex-husband used to see the tower when nobody else did. And again, ex-husband, I'm thinking Juliet and the man in black. And then there's this idea of the outlier approaching William, or sorry, man in black, and saying, you think you're going crazy, but you're not. You're not alone. And that was like the man in black's entire storyline in the beginning of season three, was it right. not? That the first time we see him in season three, he's wrecked shop. He's seeing vis visions of Emily like he has truly gone just completely off the wall at that point. And so it could be this thing of whether it is nature or nurture, whether it's the experiences of William or his own experiences born from his relationship with Charlotte Hale. Like he feels particularly susceptible in this moment and surprisingly receptive of the head on his shoulder. Yeah. Uh, so he... Yeah, he's really taken by it, but then eventually he sort of like shakes back to his responsibilities. And he would have killed this person if not for Jay's intervention. Jay shows up, shoots him up. He won't be out for long, but he's out long enough for Jay, the outlier, Stubbs, and the rest to escape back to their Brooklyn boat. Yeah, so 
do you imagine we are going to be getting any more of this as a follow-up? Like, do we think that we're this is not the last we're going to see of this mysterious brunette outlier? Um, I think that she seems. I don't. I don't know why we would have gone through all the trouble in a in a season that is as short as this one, uh, as Westworld is now with just eight episodes a pop. I don't know why we would have spent so much time saving this particular outlier unless we were going to spend some time with the character. Yeah, I'm just imagine. I guess maybe it would also help because we don't really know that much about the outliers. Like we saw Peter for a hot second. We saw that accountant in that simulated scene for a hot second. But like, we don't exactly know, to Charlotte's point, why they end up changing. And right. so I think that it'd be a nice way to get to know this more. I mean, who knows if she gets in contact with Stubbs for a prolonged amount of time. Uh, poor Hemsworth might not be making it out of season four. Uh, no, they've gone so out of their way to make sure that Hemsworth is along for the whole ride, Mike. I think uh, they're keeping Hemsworth around until the bitter end. Imagine like everyone else dies and he's the freaking Fortinbras at the end of Hamlet who like he's... ends up getting the keys to the kingdom. He's the canary in the coal mine, Tweety F and Tweet. I suppose so, but the canary usually dies before it means a minor <laughs> scale. I guess that's right. He's like the opposite of the canary in the coal mine. Um, all right, let's go back to Christina. Uh, she's like, whoa, I know Kung Fu. You know, she's talking to Teddy <laughs> about all of this. He's like, all right, well, you got to get back on your loop. You've already been off loop for long enough. They're going to start noticing. Uh, be careful. Now that you know, you just got to walk on eggshells around everybody uh, because any one of them could be one of us. And Christina says, well, that's very stressful. What happens if I screw this up? And he's like, you won't screw this up. And then she goes out to a restaurant lunch date with Charlotte Hale and screws this up. Yeah, I mean, this is, I feel bad for her because this really was out <laughs> of the frying pan into the fire of like, okay, you just found out you're a god. Play it cool in front of the one person who like is keeping major tabs in on you to make like sure you the god right yeah exactly <laughs> be like i don't know what's going on here but i mean it's very clear from hale's pointed questions right that like she knows something that she's been keeping some sort of tabs whether it's through surveillance or again perhaps seeing through hosts or something like that or through other people where she is really digging in on the fact right of like oh you met someone what's his name Right. Uh, interestingly mirrored to Emmett, right? Asking Christina what her name is in this story. Again, I don't know if it's a plant. I don't know if it could be something else, but Christina is able to get away here by having some clumsy waiters walk into each other. And I, I did lull at the one guy who just quits on yeah. the spot. Yeah, he's done. Maybe she's going to write another story for him. Like, and he quit his job and became a rocket scientist. Uh, hopefully that guy has a happier ending. Uh, I really liked this scene between Christina and Charlotte Hale, though. First of all, I think that uh, Evan Rachel Wood and Tessa Thompson, whenever they're together, is really, really great stuff. Absolutely. And I think such a showcase for the two of them as actors because this scene felt so different from any scene that we had ever seen between the two of them before. Uh, and it really struck me, Mike, that actually the one way in which it is pretty similar to um, scenes between the two of them that we have seen before is that there is sort of this quality about the dynamic where one is the protector and the other is the one in need of protection, uh, that there is this sort of parental uh, quality to them, uh, where Dolores was always sort of being protective of Charlotte in season three. And in this, I get that vibe in reverse to the point, And I think that we talked about this once upon a time. I am really starting to feel like Christina is the uh, however we want to like describe this process is in Charlotte's eyes, effectively her daughter. 
Uh, mm-hmm. I think I think that that's what's going on with Charlotte and Christina. And the reason why Christina is able to run around and why she exists in this place at all is I think that Charlotte wants to give herself, uh, you know, like a copy of herself, the ability to like live a blissfully ignorant life, doing the things that would make her happy, such as telling stories like there's important stuff that she is also doing because she would only trust herself with that job in the same way that she was entrusted with the job in the first place back in season three. But I think the way in which she's like interacting with Christina here really strikes me in that way. And I think, uh, you know, it would it would be it would be a development that um, makes sense with the naming of Evan Rachel Wood's character this time. You know, Chris, uh, Christina, Jesus have something in common there, Mike, Hmm. Uh, son of God, daughter of God. Is there something like that going on here? Yeah, that's a really great call as to her wanting to mimic this dynamic, because, again, Hale's entire M.O. is I'm going to do what my predecessors did, but better. Right. Right. Her entire thing with Dolores was that she felt like Dolores abandoned her and sided with the humans to help humanity, a group which impacted people that she loved and cared about. And so I think it totally makes sense for the character to be like, F you, mom, I'm going to have my own daughter. and I'm going to treat her better than you ever treated me. And so from that purpose, could the New York Park almost be like a sandbox for this kid? right of okay this is your toy box you go play with all these action figures that you get to create i guess then the the question is what would be her end game with christina would it be a darth vader luke skywalker thing of like okay eventually you realize that you're a god and now you can come join me and rule the world together is it okay to your point i want to keep her in the dark because i don't want her to get involved in all the depravity that exists we want a better world for our kids right you know something like that Yeah, I'm not entirely sure, but I think it is a really interesting dynamic. Like, they are considering themselves college roommates, but that's not the dynamic in many ways that comes across here, right? She very much comes across as someone who really cares about Christina. Now, maybe most of it is probing for information, but some of it is truly like, oh, you deserve to be happy. What's going on with you? I'm trying to remember, does Christina, because Christina's going to go back to work and look up Charlotte's name, did Charlotte actually say her name when they were together in the restaurant? Um, I, I don't remember if she did or not. Um, she, that but, name, yeah, that name's going to be in her head. And I just wondered, yeah. like, how did she get that name? Right. I mean, Christina is when she goes to, um, when she goes and talks with Emmett, she will bring up Charlotte Hale. Right. Uh, so she is like straight up, like she has the name in her head, but I mean, in, in this next scene as well, she also seemingly from nowhere pulls out Dolores Abernathy. So it's just possible that like um, she is outside of she has breached the walled garden, right, Mm -hmm. is is what we hear that she has basically, um, you know, gone past the security measures that are in place that are meant to prevent her from seeing the truth of her circumstances. So if that's the case, if she is already like kind of like, uh, you know, if she's, you know, trying to escape from the center of the maze, she's got the hedge clippers out. Uh, whether or not she knows that that's what she's doing to like tear the war path out of this thing. Um, So it's possible that she is now just like plucking some of the information out of thin air as she is discovering it. Yeah, perhaps. But I I think it's a dynamic that I hope we check more in on. I know that the man in black says that Charlotte often doesn't come to the park, but I agree. Whenever Em and Rachel Wood and Tessa Thompson do scenes together, it is absolute dynamite. And I just, 
adore the fact that it is such a shift in power dynamic from where these two actresses were in season three. So she goes back to work. She looks for Charlotte Hale, character not found, Dolores Abernathy, she says, uh, which was, I don't know if it was as satisfying for you as it was for me, but I thought this was like a deeply satisfying moment. Oh yeah, because again, this was something that we had sort of been waiting for. Maybe not like a confirmation that she's Dolores. Again, as we mentioned, there's an outside chance it could be a resurrected Maeve in a manner of speaking, but like, come on. She's played by Evan Rachel Wood. Dolores is going to be involved in some way, shape, or form. Uh, This is not a Nikki, Tracy, Jessica situation from Heroes. So I believe they were long-lost twins might be the thing. We'll have to uh, review the tape at some point, Mike, and see for ourselves. Um, But uh, to the point of Maeve, uh, when you brought that up earlier, I thought that that was really interesting that her power seems to be more in line with Maeve's. And I think, you know, there is a degree to which lessons from Maeve could have just been learned and passed down to another generation of hosts. It could be as simple as just like, changing the structure of your makeup and like boosting attributes and everything like that, the way in which that was done for Maeve. Was it that Maeve herself was special or that she had access to this stuff that any of these hosts could have potentially unlocked? But let's say that there is a world in which Christina is Charlotte's daughter. Could she also have like some of Maeve's code spliced into her? I mean, could it be a thing where it's Maeve's brain ball in a Dolores body clone that like Hale ended up producing perhaps man I don't know it's so complicated this show she could be an amalgamation of every single character on the show remember when Ed Harris said this season would be simpler I don't know how he followed it but I want his brain so that I can see things the way that he does Uh, so Emmett's gonna come along and he's like you've been very bad you're looking up questions that you shouldn't be looking up because when she asks about Dolores Abernathy you see not only is the character not found but it is an illegal request restricted Mm -hmm. access uh, yeah, I mean, immediately flags on the boss's radar of like, uh-oh, someone's looking up something naughty in incognito mode. But what's interesting here is you talk about questions. He has a few, including one particular one. Have you ever questioned the nature of your reality? Right. Um, I think that there's a read of this scene where he's an ally to some extent of like somebody who is either awake or somebody who is like protectively looking out after Christina. But then you also have to square that up with the fact that he points finger guns at her brain. Yeah. Or just the fact that like, again, look back to episode two, right? When like she is going to the institution to find out more about the outliers and like he is very specifically on her case. He's very adamant to her of like, stay in your lane, stay in your path, write these specific narratives. I, I have to feel like, even though I had the read before of like him asking about the the Dolores narrative was perhaps a planty thing. Like I have to think that he is sort of working towards the status quo of like, yeah. put your head down. Don't consider anything outside of the ordinary. Just keep writing your stories because that's how this entire community is created. And so I think from that perspective, he is doing the job of the Delos people. Uh, One of the very first interactions we get in this series, right, is Dolores being in, uh, what's the term that they use? for it uh for when they put them in like system mode right when they they oh gosh yeah i wish that i had this uh uh stasis i don't know i don't have it immediately something like that but essentially like they're questioning her uh and one of the main questions they ask is have you ever questioned the nature of your reality and so i'm imagining she's doing not a fidelity test but a bit of like a hey i'm just checking in again which to me again indicates maybe a larger hive mind or a larger person controlling multiple people in this world whatever world it may be 
is just really trying to see whether or not she has truly gotten to the center of the maze. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot going on here. Uh, a lot happening here as she is then going to take this guy over, basically. Like, stop, take three steps back, tell me the truth. And he's just compliant with all of it. Analysis mode is what it's called. Analysis, yes, 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 yes. I knew it oh began with an A. Yes. Uh, so she's like going to be like, uh, you know, uh, tell me everything. Where's the walled garden? He says everywhere. Uh, and that really comes into play when she goes to the top level of HQ, Mike, and goes to look at the city and to look at the game and to look at her characters only to find that like everybody pings on the radar. And she says it out loud. This world is just a story and I am the storyteller. Yeah, and we also get mentioned here a bit of the Judas Steer, right? As mentioned by Emma, which I believe is a season two reference. I'm trying, yeah. I believe it's when she's talking to Teddy about it, right? About like the 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 cow that ends up like uh, leading everyone away. Uh, or no, no, sorry. I'm trying to remember what the Judas Steer was. Yeah. Uh, is it the bull? It could be the bull. Uh, it's It's more so I think this idea of like, uh, basically, she was the Judas steer, right? That right. she was the one that was created, who eventually led the turn on, that led the herd to turn on the farmer, right. essentially. And so, I think the fact that it is invoked here is very appropriate. And again, could be an intentional or unintentional lo- unlocking mechanism for Christina to possibly tap into some of those Dolores narratives. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting. There's a lot that's happening in this, uh, in this scene, in this sequence, as we're pushing towards the end of the episode. Uh, it's not my favorite confrontation because that's here. It's when the men in black are face to face, Mike, uh, where William and the man in black are face to face and William is being brought back online for who knows how many times it's been. And he is just given the razzmatazz to the man in black, Ed Harris playing scenes against Ed Harris. Who knew that this would be such a delightful deal? Yeah, we thought that, okay, Ed Harris in the Tron suit, absolutely incredible. Two Ed Harris's, one of them in the Tron suit is even better. I had the biggest freaking smile on my face of like, again, this is ridiculous in the best way possible. That here, Ed Harris is having to do a scene with himself. Uh, But I do find it incredibly intriguing that it seems like Man in Black has gone rogue a bit. I'm sure Charlotte does not necessarily know about this meeting, but he went a bit AWOL, assuming that Charlotte did not necessarily move her like HQ from the West Coast over to the East Coast. He went all the way back to where I guess William has been in what, like cryogenically frozen and unfrozen yeah. over the course of 20 plus years to talk with him. Man, uh, when he gets out of that thing, because inevitably he's going to, he's going to like uh, be so sore. You know, he's just going to really have like, to pee. Do they let him move around ever? He's going to be like Austin Powers. He's going to have a lot of DVT going on, I think. He's all DVT. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Evacuation. Come. Yeah. It's going to take a long time. It's going to take a long time. We get this whole back and forth about um, who am I? Am I you? I've been made in your image. What am I? Uh, do I have this virus? Uh, and Ed Harris just uh, cracking up at himself. Uh, looks like you reached the center of the maze, my friend. Uh, and basically what he's going to instill in this guy is what do you think of your world? And the man in black says, it isn't mine. It's hers. And then, and then William says to the man in black, well, maybe it's time you question the nature of your own reality. God war coming through. 
Yeah, it's a really fun idea. Again, very evocative of the underlings rising up, much like happened with Holoris herself, of like, you gotta watch out for those subordinates. I like the exchange where Man in Black says, I was made in your image, and William replies, you'll never be me. And Man in Black, like, bellows, then what am I? And it really is, like, one of the biggest rises of emotions I've seen out of Ed Harris on yeah. this show. And it is clear that he is having for lack of a better term, an identity crisis yes. of, okay, I was created by Charlotte, but I was also supposed to be this guy, but this guy says I'm not supposed to be him. Who am I exactly supposed to be? What am I supposed to do? It's a really interesting facet for the character. I know we talked about how this was just an opportunity for Ed Harris to be the simplistic shoot, shoot, kill, kill man in black that he wanted to be from the very beginning. But I like that we're tapping more into this. Again, some of my favorite Williams stuff was in season three when we got into like the Council of Williams, essentially, and him truly facing with himself. So maybe that's just like my go-to William content that I really enjoy is him actually having a conversation with himself. I got to imagine this is taking us down a path where Man in Black is either going to like betray Charlotte or just go AWOL or perhaps go the way of those other 38 hosts by the end of it with him having just a true spiraling effect as to not even knowing where he should go or what he should be doing. But this is really mythical as well, right? Like the, 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 uh, the competition between the gods and who gets to control this place. Uh, so I think if that's where we are angling uh, and we're now getting ourselves to a place where it's once again, going to be a rematch of sorts between the man in black and Dolores, that's fun because it has this really different spin on it at this point in time. Uh, and I love the idea of William in his prison being able to kind of like Hannibal Lecter, the man in black. Uh, it's a shame that Anthony Hopkins isn't on the show anymore. I to know. Be in this role. Maybe, maybe that's it, that this isn't really William. The reason why he lasted so long without aging a day is because it's actually Ford in another William host body. Yeah, could be, could be. Um, could we uh, find out that Christina is secretly Robert Ford reborn? I mean, uh, I love the way they used Anthony Hopkins in season two, but it seems like they are sort of done with him. They're not going to de-age him anymore, and they sort of already had him, his afterlife appearance. But that would be very fun if we have the the newly invoked version of Robert Ford. I want to go back to the Judas Deer for a hot second because I realized I did misappropriate it. Uh, the Judas Deer was like leading all the cattle or livestock to be slaughtered, but like because in doing so, they end up getting spared. Uh, so I think that's interesting that the boss ended up invoking that. Does that tie into the idea that like she is writing narratives for people like Peter who like involve death by suicide or murder or anything like that, that she is essentially the one who unfortunately holds the pen as we talk about the ending of the episode here, right? This, this revelation with Teddy of uh, I, I, this is what I'm writing. Everyone did it, you know, who did this to me, right. you did that she is the one who is responsible for all of their fates, good and bad, mostly bad. Yeah, uh, and I think that, you know, if there is like a, a an uncharitable read of Charlotte and Christina's relationship, and if Charlotte is like trying to put something horrible on uh, the person that she was created in the image of initially, um, that maybe like saddling a version of Dolores with the perpetual loop of all of this agony for all of these people uh, that could line up. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting place to leave it. I would say maybe actually in response to the scenes that came before it, like it did not feel as climactic. And I do feel like there is a little bit of like 
a technicality here and that at least the way I read it was when Teddy said, you know, who did this to me? You did that. It was right, like the final oh, scene of the episode. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're a version of Dolores and uh, another version of Dolores in the form of Charlotte Hale created you. Like that's the way that I personally read it. Not that she created herself. It's not the hand drawing itself. Right. Um, but that final scene, she sees the tower. She says it's been here the whole time. They have the whole world in there, a perfect reflection of all of us down to the tiniest detail. And she says, that's what I'm writing, isn't it? Everyone. Uh, and she says, who built this? Who did this to me? And Teddy says, you did. Uh, so who did this to me? You did. You did this to yourself. Um, I, I do look forward to unpacking that because I think the idea of the self has uh, a, a lot of uh, loaded material in it um, with, the, with the man in black and William in this episode uh, and so many of the other characters questioning the nature of their reality. So what does it mean for Christina to have been the one who built this, who did this to herself? Is that something that she actually herself directly did? Is it um, the ripple out of the previous Doloreses that are responsible for this? Um, it's a it's a provocative ending, Mike, but one that leaves me with more questions than I have answers. Yeah, I'm going to go with, again, the simplest explanation, which is that the you refers to Charlotte Hale, that indeed, if the goal by Bernard or Hale or whomever is to wake her up to realize the power that she has, it's really just an easy way to, to you know, dissimilate down, okay, this is a version of yourself. You're the only one that can take her on and be able to like essentially get things back to normal or at least now make a new, new, new world order from the rubble that has come from this robot revolution. So that's what my read is right now. It could end up being a situation where like, Christina did indeed make this world and like erased her memory or blocked it out and just like didn't realize it entirely that she really is this author that like conscripted herself into a role and just has no memory of putting herself into this from an ignorance perspective. Yeah. I, I think those are probably the two most likely reads of it at the moment. All right. Well, we've got three episodes to find out is the good news, Mike. Uh, we are uh, we are looking down the, the end of this thing, getting real, real close here as there's only three more episodes of Westworld to go beyond this point. And unfortunately, we do not have a feedback show coming your way this week. But if you've got anything stemming from this episode of Westworld that you want to send in, We'd love to read it, and if it's uh, if it intersects with whatever happens next in episode six, we will get to it on that recap podcast uh, as well. So the next episode of the show, Mike, it's called Fidelity. Hmm, oh. that's a word that uh, is very uh, uh, meaningful within the the greater Westworld canon. I mean, even without the title, I would have imagined that Caleb was going to be at least a, a pretty big part of the episode, considering that, again, we took an entire episode off of him. Which I'm had... fine with, by the way. I, I kind of like lingering in that uh, that discomfort of the Caleb reveal. It's like, okay, yeah, uh, stretch this out for a little while. That was terrible, and I still think that it's worth living in the terror of it. Yeah, and I think what I've liked about season three and four as well is that they are fine, especially with kind of siloing characters in the form of we still don't know if Christina is in our world or not with, okay, Bernard was a lot and not in the first two episodes, shows up in episode three. Like, I am more fine with that in modern TV than, okay, everyone gets a little bit of something in every episode. Like, I am fine with passing the ball around rather than everybody putting a hand on the ball and trying to move it across the field. So, yeah, yeah. 
I, th- I think set uh, them out if they've got, you know, uh, reason to be there, right? You know, like, don't just have them on the show just to have them on the show. Put them on the show when they are going to be advancing the story. Uh, and I think that this season has been good in that regard. Yeah, and so we ended with Caleb's big Planet of the Apes moment, right? Or like a combination Planet of the Apes, Captain America moment where he runs out and realizes the true world that he's in. That's going to be a lot to unpack, and I'm sure we'll get into it next episode. Uh, and Fidelity all confirms that, considering that one of the big twists of last episode was the fact that Hale revealed he was undergoing a Fidelity test, right. and we'll see if he achieves it next episode. All right, we will find out. Uh, if you've got feedback you want to send in for the next recap, uh, Westworld at postshowrecaps.com is the way to do that. You can also tweet at us, at Round Howard, at a Mike Bloom type at postshowrecaps, or you can come hang out with us in the Post Show Recaps Patreon Discord when you sign up at patreon.com slash postshowrecaps. Mike Bloom, what else do you got? Uh, so we are doing Lost Down the Hatch. You made a fantastic return to form when it came to our Countdown podcast. We are now within the top 20 episodes of Lost. Uh, yeah, which... three episodes of Westworld Season 4 remaining and three episodes of the Lost Ranking Countdown on Down the Hatch remaining. Wow, it is all lining up. The middle middle of August is going to be hopping uh, for many, many different reasons. Things. Oh, yeah, and then so is the end of August. and <laughs> Yeah, and, and then every... September, and then October, and <laughs> yeah. then November, and then December, and then the rest of our lives. Yeah, it would be nice if someone could put us in the Man in Black contraption uh, and just let us rest uh, while robot versions of ourselves went about all of the podcasting and watching TV business because there's just so much of it. Just let us take like a quick pee though just a before nap. we get it. Just, just a nap, would just be good. to make sure. But yeah, yeah uh, the reality TV side of things is where things are hopping at the moment between Exit Press for the Challenge USA and Big Brother Twenty Four. But Survivor South Africa is airing four episodes a week of its new returnee season. Uh, you'd have to have like a robot-like composure to be able to watch all that Survivor in one week. But myself and Shannon Gus do have that. We discuss it every week. We just came out over the weekend with like a nice near four-hour recap of what was a very fun first week and exit interviews as well those will actually also end up capping off around the end of october just about unreal it's airing fast and uh, and heavy for like yeah. six weeks of four episodes each so yeah it's it's a wild time to be a tv fan right now but i'm very grateful to get to talk westworld again i'll just say i feel like the show has been firing on a lot of fantastic cylinders uh and has really gotten me even more invigorated with the show than seasons two and three, probably the the most since season one. I'm really excited to see where this all goes in the final three episodes. 100% agreed. We will find out in short order. We hope you're enjoying Westworld as much as we are. We will return next week for a fidelity check. Until then, everybody take care. Bye-bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.